Hello and welcome to this Unorthodoxy podcast. I want to share with you a sermon that I delivered last night, which was the 23rd of October. And it was really a wonderful occasion. Father Grant Thistlewhite, who's who's at the St. Wilfred's Anglican Church, it's this little Anglican church near where I stay. It's this beautiful old building. And Father Grant asked me a while ago, uh, I think he's actually been asking me for about a year, uh, to speak about hell, but he keeps on asking me to speak about hell at this forum that we both go to, and I've kept on saying to him, but this is a bad idea because this forum is populated by very conservative evangelicals, and my views on hell are not conservative and evangelical, although I guess it depends on your definitions of those words. So Father Grant actually invited me to come to speak to his church on this subject, and during the day, he phoned me and said to me that there's a bit of a change of plan, which is that we're going to be doing the service by candlelight because there was no power. So in the end, this is exactly what we did. I was standing at this altar, and this altar had about 40 candles in front of me. So I was kind of bathed in the light of this of all of these candles while the people I was speaking to were, were kind of cloaked in darkness in this old church. And as you will hear from the recording, there must have been a bit of dust in the church because someone kept on sneezing. Uh, so that's kind of weird. But it was a really beautiful occasion. I got to share some of the stuff I've been thinking about around this topic, although I've been thinking about it for about five years and researching and grappling with it. So so this 30-minute sermon is is just the tip of the iceberg. And what was really wonderful is that afterwards, um, I got to go and speak with everyone and, and, and listen to their questions, and we got to discuss some of the more contentious aspects of the topic. Uh, what I'm presenting here is obviously the universalist view of salvation, which does challenge some of the more conservative views on hell. And what was great is I got to do this in an Anglican church, which which has a history, a long history of universalism, of embracing the notion of universal salvation. I know that you may not necessarily agree with everything that I say here, although I, I can assure you that I've done more than a bit of research to make sure that I'm not completely off target. Um, but I hope that at the very least, this stimulates some healthy thought and some good discussions. So without further ado, here is a sermon on rethinking hell. So I want to speak to you tonight about rethinking hell. And I want to start with uh, a passage in Matthew 22 verse 36 to 40, which, in which we read about a, a lawyer who goes to Jesus and asks him a question, and we hear Jesus's answer to this question. And the lawyer asks, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. So when Jesus says the second is like it, he means it's the same thing, but in different language. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In his book on Christian doctrine, St. Augustine, this is somewhere close to 400 years after Jesus said these words, St. Augustine suggests that anyone who thinks he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them but cannot by his understanding build up this double love of God and neighbor 
has not yet succeeded in understanding them. To fail to love is to fail to understand what God is about. For the second century theologian named Origen, the purpose of reading the Bible is to be transformed more and more into the likeness of God, who is love. And of course, we read that God is love in 1 John 4 verse 8. This claim that God is love is at the center of Christian faith. But if God is love, then what's up with hell? It's probably not an exaggeration to say that the idea of hell is easily one of the greatest barriers to helping us to really trust that God is love. The gospel message that a lot of us uh, hear is, is, goes something like this. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But as you know, you are a sinner, so God sent Jesus to save you. And the good news is if you believe in Jesus you will get to have eternal life. But if you don't believe in Jesus, well, then God is going to send you to hell where you will be tortured endlessly with no hope of reprieve. I guess hell, as it is expressed here, is a a good way of scaring people into heaven. But I think it comes at a cost. It makes God out to be a little bit like the Roman Empire or a lot like the Roman Empire back when Christianity was just getting started. If you were to confess back then that Caesar is Lord, that was a statement that was used in those days. If you said Caesar is Lord, then you would have been treated really well. No problem. But if you didn't declare that Caesar is Lord, well, then you got tortured and crucified. The love of the Roman Empire was entirely conditional. And that raises the question, is God like the Roman Empire? Is is God like that? There's this internet meme out there that I think is hilariously on target in in terms of critiquing the traditional picture that we get. It's a picture of Jesus, and he's standing standing at the door of someone's house, and he's knocking, and he says, knock, knock. It's a knock, knock joke. And the person on the inside says, who's there? And Jesus says, it's Jesus. I'm here to save you. And the guy on the inside goes, from what? And he says, "Um, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. (laughs) is that is that what the bible teaches most of us have been given a picture of hell and what it's about and how it fits into christian theology and because we don't want to dwell on dark and depressing subjects like eternal torment most of us might tend to hide this picture in the basement somewhere out of sight and out of mind because we feel maybe that if we ignore it for long enough it'll just go away But it never goes away. It haunts everything we think about God and life and Christianity and ethics. So sooner or later, we're going to have to take the picture out and look at it again. And maybe, and this is my suggestion, maybe if we take another look at the picture, we will discover that there's more to it than meets the eye. Taking another look at pictures is what a number of scientists have actually done with regard to a few paintings, especially paintings by great masters. Using different technologies like infrared scanning and multispectral imaging or high-intensity x-rays, scientists have discovered that a few famous paintings are in fact paintings over paintings. For instance, uh, underneath a fresco painted by Giorgio Vasari somewhere in the 1500s, scientists have discovered a painting by of, of the Battle of Anghiari by none other than Leonardo da Vinci. One image covers another one so well 
that we need special equipment to see what the other image is. Without looking beneath the obvious image, we wouldn't even realize that there's another picture there. And I have really good reasons and years of research uh, to, for believing that what started off as one picture of hell in Christian history and theology got covered up by another. We see one image, but it's not the original image. In fact, as John Sweeney suggests in his book, Inventing Hell, most of our ideas about hell come from Dante's Inferno, which was written in the 14th century. And Dante was paying much more attention to Greek and Roman mythology when he wrote that book than, when he, than he was paying attention to Christian theology. If we dig into history, if we look behind the picture we've been given, we find another picture. When we look at the works of the early church fathers and the historical context and message of the Bible beneath the picture we've been handed, we find that what has been added to the theological canvas has often changed and distorted the original image. Obviously, I don't have a lot of time with you tonight, so I'm going to uh, only be able to sketch an outline of what this picture looks like, like. The details, and believe me, there are lots of details and lots of contention around this, issues, uh, around this issue, but the details are things that you're probably going to have to look uh, into yourself. By the way, afterwards, when we gather, um, I will absolutely happily answer your questions, or at least point you in a direction that might help you to answer your questions. Unfortunately, as it turns out, a lot of our current ideas about the afterlife in general, um, while simple and appealing in their own way, are just wrong. They're, they're not in the Bible. So a lot of the pictures we've been given, not really there. They're just part of our cultural consciousness. So let's begin with the obvious. In the Western Christian consciousness, we typically find that there's this belief that when we die, there are two places we can go and end up in. The one is heaven and the other one is hell. And because this story is so embedded in our consciousness, at least a few of you will be surprised to hear that there's not once in the Bible that heaven is referred to as the afterlife. It's not the place we go to when we die. And you can look it up yourself um, if you want to. In the Bible, heaven refers to the reality of God which always intersects with and permeates the material universe, which is why we, we speak of a good meal as heavenly or sometimes feeling like we're in heaven. That's actually not only metaphorical language. It's actually hinting at something that's true. And this helps us to understand what, what Jesus meant in the Lord's Prayer when he, he prayed that God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. This idea that the reality of heaven, the reality of God, would permeate the material universe. And this is what, uh, what, what Jesus meant when he announced that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't mean you're going to die soon and, and land up in a better place. He meant that the reality of God is going to permeate this world in a new and exciting way. So Jesus' message was not just about the afterlife. It was about the whole of life, the whole thing, every single aspect of it. So to cut a very long story short, the picture we get in the New Testament is that after death, there is a kind of waiting period when we go to be with Christ. This is something that um, St. Paul writes about in the book of Philippians. And this is followed at the end of the age by the resurrection of the dead, when we will find ourselves with new resurrected bodies, better than the Avengers. I'm just saying that. <laughs> and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. 
In this picture, the afterlife is physical. It's not disembodied. We don't become disembodied spirits. We, we remain physical in new resurrected bodies. At the end of the age, as St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, God will be all and in all. Huge language. The whole point of the message of Jesus is that this heavenly reality is erupting within this world. Whenever goodness is found here, heaven has come to earth. Heaven is when acts of kindness, generosity, love, forgiveness, and self-giving are done. And this means that everything Christ-like that we do here, this side of death, will continue into what the Bible writers call the age to come. What this means for us is that to follow Christ is to wear his image, which is the image of God. This is what salvation is really about, becoming more like God, who is love. And this means that heaven is not so much a place as it is a way of living and experiencing life through Christ in its absolute abundance. This is what Jesus wanted to bring to us as he communicates in John 10 verse 10. I came that you may have life and that you may have it in its fullness. So to repeat myself, heaven is not when we, where we go when we die. It's the reality of God in us in this age now and in the age to come after we die. As for hell, well, hell is a, is a bit like the opposite of that. As, a, as Pope John Paul II said, hell is not so much a place as it is a state of being. And I'm going to unpack a little bit of what that means. When we know this, the biblical images of hell make much more sense. In most recent English translations of the New Testament, the word hell only appears 14 times. It's, a very, it's very seldom discussed or spoken about, but most of these times it is spoken about by Jesus. Hell is the English word that translates three different Greek words, and they all have different meanings. The words are Gehenna, Hades, and Tartarus. All three words are symbolic and evocative. They are more poetic than scientific or literal. And I think a lot of our problems with understanding hell is that we've taken these symbolic things and made them very literal. Hades and Tartarus are words borrowed from Greek mythology to refer to the place of the dead. Only Tartarus indicates a place of punishment, but it is used only, used only once in 1 Peter 2 verse 4, and there's, there it doesn't refer to the punishment of people. That's very important. And Gehenna, well, Gehenna is really interesting. This is the word that Jesus used most often when referring to what we call hell. It refers to an actual geographical location on the south and west sides of the city of Jerusalem. So whenever Jesus was talking about Gehenna, his first listeners would have thought of that actual place, which was also known as the Hinnom Valley. By the way, in your Bibles, when you read hell, often there's a little footnote and it says Gehenna or Tartarus or Hades. Pay attention to that. It's a very helpful way of understanding what Jesus was actually referring to. So I've talked about Gehenna is linked to this Hinnom Valley, this place. When you know this, this raises a question. What would the first listeners of Jesus have, have thought of when they heard him refer to the Hinnom Valley? The most obvious meaning is hinted at in the Old Testament, where the Hinnom Valley is mentioned several times. Most of these mentions are found in the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah records 
that it was a place where the Ammonites, they were a bunch of God-hating pagans, would actually sacrifice their own children to a violent god called Moloch. So not, not, you're, you already get the sense that this is not going to raise pretty images for the people that Jesus was talking to. In Jeremiah 19, the Hinnom Valley gets the nickname Valley of Slaughter. And in Jeremiah 32, we discover that God found the things that people did there utterly detestable. So when Jesus warned people of Gehenna, he was just like Jeremiah, warning people that if they continued to live in a particular way, they were in essence not worshiping the true God, but a totally different God. They were not living in the truth. And at least part of the point that Jesus was making was that this was hurting them. If you're not living in the truth, if you're in this image sacrificing your own children, you're hurting yourself. Again, like heaven, hell is not so much a place as it is a a way of living. Hell is when we worship idols, not God. Hell is when we fail to be image bearers of the God who is love. Hell is when we fail to embrace the full humanity that Jesus offers us. This idea, by the way, is guided by the work of a retired Anglican bishop uh, named Tom Wright. Most of my theology this evening I've rooted in the Anglican tradition for obvious reasons. (laughs) This failure to worship God is referred to in the Bible as sin, which we know is something that needs to be dealt with. It wrecks everything. But precisely how sin needs to be dealt with will depend very much on what we understand sin to be. And one of the dominant metaphors we use to understand sin is this idea that sin is crime. And this metaphor makes it logical to see sin as something that needs to be punished because that's what we do to crimes. We punish crimes. Actually, we're supposed to punish crimes, but what we've done is we've started to punish criminals, which is a different issue. But as Derek Flood notes in his book, The Healing Gospel, this is not the only way to understand sin. A vitally important metaphor for sin in the Bible is the idea that sin is a sickness Even according to St. Augustine's doctrine of original sin, sin is something we're born with. It's a genetic disease like Huntington's or Alzheimer's. In a sense, we are naturally hell-bound in this way because we are, as the theologian Lady Gaga says, born this way. (laughs) So essential to the Christian tradition is the idea that sin is not fundamentally something that we can help, even as St. Paul discusses in Romans 7. And this complicates things because diseases need to be cured and healed, not punished. Jesus says in Luke 5, verse 31 and 32, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We would think it abominable if people got punished for getting a cold or cancer. This sickness is punishment enough. Also, the sickness of sin is unique in that it can be the very thing that prevents us from knowing that we need healing and from taking up the cure. So just to keep this idea of healing in mind, it's helpful to know that the Greek word for salvation or save is the word sozo, which means healing as well. It doesn't just mean save, it means healing. Uh, So for instance, Jesus often used the uh, the phrase, your faith has saved you, and it would be equally good to translate this as your faith has healed you. Sin is a sickness 
and it needs a cure. And of course, you can still choose to not go to the doctor for the cure, and this is going to have some repercussions. Mostly, you're going to be hurting yourself. But this raises the question, is eternal punishment the consequence that God wants for us? I don't think so. I'm going to argue that, let, let's, for argument's sake, just say that maybe, maybe hell is punishment. I don't think it is, but let's say it is, for, for the sake of looking at the question. In which case, we need to ask an obvious question. What is punishment actually for? Most of us agree that punishment is not there only for its own sake. It's there to correct, to restore, and to help. It's not pleasant for the person being punished, but the ideal is that it shouldn't be detrimental to them either. In fact, punishment that is detrimental has a name. We call it abuse. So the Anglican writer Thomas Allen, in an astonishingly good book called Christ Triumphant, it's also astonishingly long, but very brilliant, uh, he writes the following, and this is written in the late 1800s, so bear with me, it's going to feel like a time machine has just happened. He says this, endless penalties contradict the true end of punishment. Apart from all questions of its justice, apart too from the horror it excites, Endless torment is useless and therefore a groundless infliction. It is a mere barbarity because it is only vindictive and in no sense remedial. Vindictive meaning it's a little bit like revenge, Quentin Tarantino flashbacks. And it's not healing, it's not helping in any way. There is something positively sickening in the thought of its cruelty combined with the uselessness of penalty prolonged when all hope of amendment is over and when retribution has been fully exacted. To go on punishing forever, simply for punishment's sake, shocks every sentiment of justice. And the case is so much worse when, as the idea of endless torment suggests, which is the so-called traditional view of hell, it is really the prolongation of evil, when it is making evil endless. To explain, what Alan is getting at here, I think is quite brilliant and spot on. Even in the so-called traditional view of hell, hell is caused by rebellion against God, which is sin, obviously. If punishment only sustains the rebellion and never cures it, that means that sin itself is sustained. In which case, instead of taking sin and evil seriously as something that needs to be gotten rid of, the so-called traditional view of hell suggests that sin will get the last word. This mean that, means that God's persistent, compelling love is in fact weaker than our sin and weaker than our d desires to defy him. If punishment needs to be everlasting, this means that ultimately salvation is only partial. And as Thomas Allen says, all forms of partial salvation are but so many different ways of saying that sin is in the long run too strong for God. And I don't think this is how Jesus understood his own saving work. He's, he says in, in John 12, 32, When the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. All people. Not just a few people. Not just a tiny group of elect. The whole deal. And this is why Acts 3, verse 21, we, we read that about the restoration of all things. And why Luke 3 verse 6 says that all flesh will see the salvation of God. Partial salvation makes no sense. 
And now just to clarify, I'm going to throw a bunch of Bible verses in your face. And I, I hope that you get a sense of the bigness of God's salvation from these verses. Acts 10.34 says God shows no partiality. We also get a hint of this in Matthew 5. Uh, God sends rain on the good and, and, and the bad. It's for everyone. It's the same good thing for everyone. And in 2 Samuel 14.14, we read that God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. Joel 4 verse 2 tells us that God promises to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Psalm 80 verse 8 says, O God, judge the earth, for, for you shall inherit all nations. In Romans 5 verse 18, St. Paul writes, Therefore, as, as through one man's offense, judge, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the, gift, the free gift of salvation came to all people. In Romans 11 verse 32, St. Paul also says, God c- committed them all to disobedience. It's a very, very weird verse, but he did this so that, they, so that he might have mercy on all. Then in the famous hymn in Philippians 2 verse 9 to 11, we find these words. God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And St. Paul echoes this in Romans 14 verse 11 when he writes, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess to God. That's every knee and every tongue. That's a lot of knees and tongues. It's not just a few. And the confession that Jesus is Lord, which Paul is alluding to here, is not a forced confession. It's not a confession under torture. In those days, when Paul wrote this, this confession that Jesus is Lord is a personal proclamation of of saving faith. It's a personal belief. It can't be coerced. So perhaps the most powerful affirmation of universal salvation comes from Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20. It's this beautiful passage. Uh, In it, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. St. Paul, who happens to be a writer who never mentions hell once, is being quite universalist here. That phrase, all things, appears throughout this passage, and we can assume that it means the same thing throughout. All things were created through Christ. All things will return to him, no matter how long it takes. Because, as St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, love never fails. And the point is, Christ's salvation is total, not partial. The Anglican mystic William Law complements what we read in Colossians when he writes the following, also written a long time ago, but beautiful. The love that brought forth the existence of all things changes not 
through the fall of its creatures, but is continually at work to bring back all fallen nature and creatures to their first state of goodness. God's providence from the fall to the restitution of all things is doing the same thing as when he said to the dark chaos of fallen nature, let there be light. He still says and will continue to say the same thing till there is no evil or darkness left. God creating, God illuminating, God sanctifying, God threatening and punishing, God forgiving and redeeming is all but one and the same essential, immutable, never ceasing working of divine nature. So as we move to a close, let's look at an image that Paul uh, gives to us in Romans 12 verse 40 where he writes, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, which is a really hilarious verse in the second bit. Jesus tells us we're to love our enemies. And we can assume that we need to do this because God is love. We need to love them because God loved us first. And God is love so much that he doesn't stop loving when his enemies reject him. He keeps on doing it. And Paul echoes this directive on how to treat our enemies too. We need to love them. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. By the way, in On Christian Doctrines, St. Augustine uses this passage to show how not to read the Bible literally. We should not, he says, literally heap burning coals on people's heads because that's not the sort of thing that love does. But to anyone living a hellish, godless life and failing to embrace their full humanity, it will feel like hell to be loved by God and to be loved by his children. When you're nice to someone who's horrible to you, they feel it to be unpleasant because it evokes all kinds of nasty feelings, shame, guilt, anger, and a number of others. In this scenario, if you act lovingly, you'd be living a heavenly life while your enemy would be in a sense, in hell. And whatever this hell is, it is, as St. Isaac the Syrian suggests, something that can turn a person back to God. That's the whole point. St. Paul uses the image of hunger in the above passage. So I'm going to use that as a, as a metaphor what I, for what I think God is doing all the time. God, being love, offers humanity a banquet. Everyone has been invited to this banquet, but some of us, for all kinds of reasons, don't participate in the banquet. Often, we're a bit like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We don't want what God has to offer, even though it's really the only food that is on offer. And the dilemma we have is that we're actually hungry, so we try all kinds of other things to fill us up. But the hunger never goes away. It gets worse. We get hungrier and hungrier. And if we refuse to eat, well, then that's just going to keep on happening for an extended period of time. And it will feel like hell. And it will feel like forever. It'll be an eternity of conscious torment. But like that time when we felt we waited in that queue forever, and that other time where you thought that your struggles would never end, at some point you're going to discover that some eternities are finite while others are not. And all I've really been saying here is that I think that hell, no matter how we come to understand this concept, is one of those finite eternities. 
and the love of God is not. God's love, as Psalm 136 says 26 times, God, God's love really does endure forever. Of course, for all kinds of reasons, many of us reject the banquet that's on offer, and that refusal will cause us all kinds of pain. At the same time, we experience hells when others refuse to love us as we need to be loved. We choose hell all the time, and we experience the hells created by other people all the time. But the universalist proposal, which is what I've only been able to explain very briefly here, is this. Ultimately, as St. Paul writes in Romans 8, there really is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. As blessed Julian of Norwich said, in the end, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. In the end, as Paul writes, God really will be all and in all. Not in a very few, not in a, only in a small number, but in everything and in everyone. That is the picture beneath the picture we've been given. And I think it's a picture that is worth reclaiming. And I hope you do too. And my prayer for you, no matter what you end up taking away from what I've said tonight, no matter whether you find yourself fully agreeing with what I've said or not, is that you will know that this God is a God you can trust and that you can trust, and that in trusting this God, your love for others will increase. Because God really is love. Shall we pray to conclude? Father God, we definitely know that we don't have all the answers, but we are very grateful that we have you. We don't know where we're going half of the time, and the road ahead of us is largely a mystery, but we know that you are in the mystery. There's a lot hidden from us, but not the truth of your Son and the illumination of your Holy Spirit. And while our questions about the afterlife may persist, and while our questions about all kinds of other things may go unanswered, may we know not to doubt your love. Guide us by your love as we continue to wrestle with your words and as we continue to live in the world. May we recognize that we are citizens of your kingdom, always working with you to bring heaven to earth. Help us to be conduits of your love. Amen.